0: Hello and welcome to the EDS at Union Now podcast. My name is Ian Reese. And last week I traveled with Dean Kelly Brown Douglas to Flint, Michigan, where we talked to local residents about the impact of the Flint water crisis in their lives and in their community. Dean Douglas and I will reflect on our trip and share some of what we saw and what we learned Uh, While speaking with folks from Flint, Michigan, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and share this show with your friends. And with that, here's our conversation about our recent trip to Flint, Michigan. Last week, we spent a few days in Flint, Michigan, meeting with residents, doctors, journalists, and uh, activists who discussed the Flint water crisis and what the larger implications uh, have been for their lives and for their community. So Kelly, Why was it important for EDS at Union to travel to Flint, Michigan for this um, experience?
1: Yeah, thanks, Ian. One of the things that we really value here as a centerpiece of our education here at EDS at Union, particularly as we are trying to nurture the kind of ministries uh, in which students really take seriously what our presiding bishop has called the Jesus Movement. Uh, and that is doing ministry beyond the four walls of a parish. So one of the things we value in the centerpiece for us is proximity. Uh, And to borrow from uh, the word of Brian Stevenson in his book, Just Mercy, that it is very important to be proximate. And so proximity matters. And it matters in the way in which you see the world, in the way in which you understand and relate to different perspectives that are not your own. It helps you to see things through other people's eyes and allows you to get out of your own way, right? Mm -hmm. And so that we like to model (laughs) that which we uh, teach, sort of practice what we preach. And so it's very important for me as the dean uh, to also be proximate and so our students had read this book uh, as one of the uh, semester reads was on the Flint water crisis and we hear all the time that in one way or the other the crisis of Flint is being resolved or being solved and Flint is coming back so you and I went Mm -hmm. out to Flint for uh, two and a half, three days to see what was going on and and proximity matters. Mm -hmm. That's why that mattered. Yeah. You no, know, So,
0: I think when we first arrived at Flint, we took a driving tour of the city, um, and the, literally the uh, Sunday newspaper headline in the Flint, the Flint Journal was, Struggles Go Beyond Just Water Trouble. Blight, vacant buildings, and tight budgets make the city a hot spot for illegal dumping. Quickly we learned that the water crisis was the, just the tip of the iceberg of many of the challenges that, we, that, that Flint is facing. What did you kind of see and experience on that first tour of the city, uh, driving through some of the neighborhoods uh, of Flint?
1: Yeah, one of the first things that I noticed, and I continue to ask over and over again, we should say that Reverend Dan Scheid uh, was the one who sort of set up the whole trip for us. And... Uh, that was an incredible uh, testament to his ministry, actually, that he was able to do that because he knows the town in which he ministers and he knows the people. So he set up, the first thing he did, of course, as you said, was he took us through this driving tour. And the first thing that I noticed as we went into the neighborhoods that were most impacted by the water crisis, these are older neighborhoods, these are neighborhoods that are disproportionately people of color because they are also poor neighborhoods. And so they are the blighted neighborhoods. And you'll recall, Ian, that as we're driving through, I kept asking, where are the schools? Right. Remember, we didn't we see... We saw so many
0: schools that were <laughs> closed down. So right. this is a city that once had 200,000 residents. Now it's just under 90,000. Um, so that shrinking population has caused tons of the neighborhood schools to close down. And you see them shells of their former buildings um the playgrounds in front of them overgrown um just closed down schools you know almost in every single neighborhood
1: right and 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 the thing i immediately noticed was that we didn't see really elementary school kids Mm -hmm. on the street and we went out uh during our time there we were out at 8 o'clock in the morning, 8.30 in the morning, when you're mm-hmm. seeing kids bustling around. We were out at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the There were no elementary school kids because no. there were no elementary mm-hmm. schools. And when, you, when a school is gone, that's the first indication, it seems to me, that people have given up on a people and given up on a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so schools are the anchors of a community. And we absolutely, from the beginning of that trip, if you recall, to the end, I kept asking where are the elementary schools? And you noted that we didn't even see school buses. Yeah,
0: I don't think we saw a school bus, a mailman. Um, <laughs> there's right. been, you know, as I mentioned in the headlines, tight budgets um, have caused cuts to the city infrastructure, whether it's police, whether it's school buses, whether it's the school buildings. Um, and no, that was a very, very stark. Yeah. Um,
1: you stark. The other thing we noticed is uh, that there's a street that is sort of a dividing line. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about and oftentimes that uh, the black people live right across the railroad tracks or near the railroad tracks. And in fact, one of the residents uh, affirmed that sort of reality because people moved up, particularly if <laughs> African-Americans moved up to the great migrations, mm-hmm. then they uh, moved they land, They lived where they landed, you know, right, right sort of at the railroad tracks. And so you have these communities in that regard and many other cities right at the railroad tracks. It sort of reminded me of what we experienced when we went down to El Paso at the border, mm-hmm. that people who weren't able to cross the border uh, from Juarez set up community right there, a very impoverished uh, community. Of would be uh, immigrants. So the same in uh, Flint, but what I noticed is like one street, remember? You would just cross the boulevard, Mm -hmm. and one street was, you were like you weren't in Flint. These trees blooming, uh,
0: these beautiful Tudor style mansions.
1: Mansions, Mm -hmm. you know, people walking their little dog, and Mm -hmm. all of those kind of things. And then you go right across the busy, street or boulevard, if you will. It wasn't quite a boulevard, but right across the busy mm-hmm. intersection, right. and it's blight, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah, and
0: as you drive down the street, it goes from like home to home, and then you'll see homes that are like completely hollowed out. You see the piping has been stripped through, houses that have gotten caught on fire, um, and then just vacant lots, lots of homes that used to exist,
1: and now they're just just vacant lots. And it so reminded me of, as well, and I mentioned this during our our trip, of my times in South Africa, uh, particularly in Cape Town. Cape Town, central and downtown, is gorgeous, right? right? And then you go out to the homelands, Mm -hmm. right? Whether it's Gutelechu or uh, uh, in Cape Town or one of the other homelands. And it's rolls and rolls of sort of corrugated uh, tin homes, etc. Well, that was what it reminded me. Of. I was reminded of that rather when we were in Flint, right. you know, that you had this wonderful neighborhood, right, and then you just crossed the street and where mo- most of them were people of color, uh, the very poor, uh, and, 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 and poor whites. So it wasn't all people of color, but predominantly, I think, they told us what sixty percent or so people of color. Uh, then you go right across the street, and yeah,
0: it's a completely different neighborhood.
1: You're like in a homeland, and you're thinking to yourself, "We're in the same country. No, we're in the same city, and these people are living like this." And this was only the this was our first drive through, right? right? So we didn't even know yet what was underneath all of this, mm-hmm. which we would discover. Right.
0: Uh so one of the first residents we talked about, where it spoke with, was a woman named Bethany Hazard. She's mm-hmm. a two-time cancer survivor who lost her daughter to cancer as well. Um, some of the some of the like impacts of these vacant lots and what what kind of gets filled in there is oftentimes drug users, um, people spending you know time in the night um, at night in those spaces in those vacant lots. What were some of the the what she saw and what she kind of the impact that she felt in uh, you know, in her neighborhood.
1: Yeah, we, when we went to visit Bethany, who was one of the uh, sort of extended parishioners of uh, Dan Scheid at St. Paul's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I thought during this visit, oh my goodness, this was our first visit, and mm-hmm. I could hardly hold it. Right. Right, you and I are sitting there, and she tells this story of course, that she finally gets this home Mm -hmm. that she's sharing with her daughter. Right, and her daughter uh, dies of cancer apparently in her 20s. She couldn't afford to get a test for her daughter. She said, only she sort of blamed herself. Remember, if only I had the ten thousand dollars to have gotten some kind of test that the hospital said that uh, her daughter needed. Perhaps she could have saved her daughter. But here she is on this corner, uh, in this neighborhood, across the street from her uh, house. Open lots. Open lots, and then mm-hmm. there's a house, I guess, that she said, uh, like a meth lab. You know, right. it sort of reminded me of, what was that bad? Uh, breaking breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. Right, there's like a meth lot, right? right. And then next door to her mm-hmm. is a home with uh, two young girls. two young girls that are of the Islamic faith tradition, and so now Bethany has very little right in, mm-hmm. in her home. Doesn't know how she's going to be able to stay in the home because we're going to hear not only the story her story of what she rent in her house now she can't get out of it what she put into it, uh, but then also these exorbitant water bills, and that's we'll talk about that. Uh, a little bit later. So she has very little, Mm -hmm. yet this is one of the things that struck me about Bethany. What little she has is like the widows' might, right? Mm -hmm. She shares. And so she gets sort of this reputation. She says she loves the children. Mm -hmm. So she like reads so that the children will come by and she reads to them. And these two little girls of the Islamic faith tradition, I mentioned that uh, purposely, uh, and I'll come back to it for a reason. They come over uh, she uh, makes some tutus because she's also sews, right? Mm-hmm. She realizes, well, they can't wear these little ballerina tutus outside the house, but they mm-hmm. like these little tutus. She get, bakes cookies right. for the kids, uh, et cetera. I think they have there's an infant in the household, which becomes even more significant as water crisis. Uh, but then she sees one day these people that are living around them uh are hollering all kind of epithets at the little girls right and and bethany calls the police about this and the hate speech and she says there's a hate speech written on the sidewalk in front of their home, in right? front of their home because of their because they of their faith tradition and and the little girls uh wear the hajibs and uh people are hollering at the, the little girls and so she calls the police and says you know reports it as a hate crime and the police say there's nothing they can do about it and they don't come that's indication number personal schools indication number two that these people uh are not wanted people uh in this city and and then uh, bethany also tells the story of living here because she gives like she does people think she has money right and so she says that People always come and knock on her door from the neighborhood asking her for money, and I would be terrified. She says, they've made me mean. Uh, <laughs>
0: but, uh, I think walking into Bethany's home was the first time that we kind of came face to face with the water crisis. Mm-hmm. She first thing, all, every, all the residents we met in Flint uh, offer and give so much of themselves Uh, Whether it's the cookies, uh, but the first thing she offers us is coffee. Right. And her in her kitchen that clearly has a sink making us coffee from jugs of water that she had to purchase, um, I think was the first moment that we kind of like saw the water crisis and kind of had to
1: experience it firsthand. Um, And she described for us, remember how mm -hmm. uh, she'd take a bath or something in sand. Right.
0: (laughs) Would be coming through, yes. Coming through, Mm -hmm. right yeah so Bethany and many of the other folks that we spoke with throughout this trip um, were firsthand impacted by by the water crisis um, whether it was uh, you know water that smelled bad water that was discolored and then ultimately finding out that there was lead in their water um, and I think of Nikia Wakes um, and you know Bethany was experiencing what this looks like in her community um, but Miss Wakes was experiencing what this was like for her children um, and her child who was now a second grader after her first grade year, she removed her from the school, removed her son from the school, and now is doing homeschooling. I believe,
1: I believe. Um, yeah. What was that?
0: You know, that conversation.
1: Right, uh, Miss Wakes, who's uh, become one of the faces for the Flint water crisis. First of all, she had two miscarriages mm-hmm. uh, as a result of this bad water, and in each instance of the miscarriage, she was carrying twins, so she lost mm-hmm. four children. Uh, she had two young children at the time. Her son, who uh, already, I guess, had been diagnosed as ADD, and we know that consuming all of this lead, and they had extremely high lead levels, and tested her son for such, so that, all that did was exacerbate mm-hmm. his uh, ADD or ADHD issues, so that by first grade, he had been suspended from school 50 times, mm-hmm. and she, who, I mean, a first grader, there. there's not enough days, the, and so, but uh, one of the things that we would learn uh, in this water, so Makia began, she said, look, I'm not going to pay for poison water, right, right? and so in the water, Flint has some of the highest, if not the highest water uh, cost in the country. Mm-hmm. And the people can't drink the water. So uh, but the people have to still pay for the water they can't drink. So they have these high water bills. There's gonna there's this is point number three, I guess. We'll see what this overall plan is that's going on with these people. So they have these high water bills that they can't pay for, they can't afford. And so, for instance, I guess like an average bill, they were saying is like $120 a for, month for for a family. Yeah. For a family, and they can't pay for these water bills yet, and they also suck, so they have to buy bottled water. I mean, this just compounds itself. So uh, she refuses to pay for her water bill. But what typically happens is, and we've heard this over and over from the residents to all the to doctors and city uh, the city councilwoman that then the people. Uh, are put on notice, mm-hmm. then if they can't pay their water bill, then a lien is placed on their property, on their home, mm-hmm. uh, to, and then ultimately the water is shut off, right? And once the water is shut off, and if they have children in the house, then the next visit they get is from Child Protective Services taking their children. And, and when we first heard this story, we are like, okay, Bethany and these people are kind of exaggerating, yeah. right? no exaggeration we heard over and over and over again and the kia refused to let them take her children and i think she moved in with somebody else or something to sort of uh get around the system where it's sort of like what you read about people who End up having, like in Ferguson, it's the same kind of situation. You have to; they give you a ticket. You then you can't afford to pay the ticket, and it keeps mounting. And next thing you know, you're in jail. Right. Right. And it's this next thing these people knew to add insult to injury is that the children were taken out of the house. Right.
0: No, they're criminalizing
1: being poor. poor. Right. And
0: the criminalizing the idea that you must pay for
1: poison right. being brought into your home. Right. And all of these people are now blamed. For a situation that they didn't create, and so they're blamed, and 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 they all talk about it, and even the city council, where that we said, they end up blaming the victims for their plight. You know, why aren't you uh, paying? And of course, we know it originated. And believe them. Why can't you afford to pay for your water? Why Why isn't this happening? Your poor parents, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Let me add one more thing to Bethany. Mm-hmm. Uh, story. Recall that she also suffered from uh, she said pneumonia right. for uh, three months, mm-hmm. right? Well, one of the stories that has not been told in Flint uh, until a recent frontline documentary uh, and very recent was just uh, came out in September of, of, of this year, is that prior to them even discovering the lead, that there are other toxins in this water and other bacteria in this water, one of which is Legionella. Mm-hmm. And so there were high incidents within this sort of radius of people with Legionnaire's disease. Mm-hmm. And and so, but no one, they insisted uh, that this had nothing to do with the water. Not only high incidence of people with Legionnaire's disease, but people, uh, deaths. Uh, So, what's recorded, I think, are like 12 to 14 deaths, but when an independent uh, researcher scientist came in, they suggested that there are dozens more deaths, and there are over 100, perhaps up to 150 incidents of Legionnaires, but they put that down in the records as pneumonia. And so, I asked uh, Bethany, uh, who was very aware of Legionnaires, was this Legionnaires or just pneumonia? And of course, who trusts, didn't you know, uh, she just knows that she had a bout of pneumonia that lasted for three months and she was very, very ill. And perhaps we could speculate uh, that it was Legionnaires disease. And uh, so the people continue, and they're fearful because Legionnaire's disease will reemerge with uh, warmer weather, and they have not fixed the issue that has created the Legionnaire's disease. Right.
0: And uh, speaking of Legionnaires, we spoke to uh, a woman who's in the local health department uh, in Flint County, or in Genesea County, where Flint Flint is, Um, and, I mean, she spoke, she was, you know, the front lines of people having... Uh, these issues and talking to them and you know starting to see this these trends and starting to report on it Um, and first the two things about her that really stood out to me was the the challenge she had bringing these issues to the state state and local government escalating the challenges that she was seeing locally um, and how seriously were being taken uh, which wasn't wasn't nearly to the the degree that it needed to be Um, and then also the trauma this woman Mm -hmm. um, felt um, in this position where she's a frontline Uh, interfacing with folks with a life-threatening disease Um, she actually had to leave uh, the health department um, even though this is was her calling this is what she went to school for this is what she always wanted to do Um, and you know there were psychological effects on this woman she she gained a ton of weight she was she said she was drinking and she subbed out you know alcohol she started to eating tacos and, and nachos instead of alcohol because she needed some you know relief and and just the trauma that the, all of the residents, whether they're, they they you know they're directly impacted by the water or um, you know professionals working um, you know interfacing with folks.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things, right? Again, that really struck me is that we think of the people who are directly impacted and continue to be impacted. We can speak more about that in a minute, but we to think about the people who are working mm-hmm. uh, on the front lines who care right. who see what's going on and we can read that you know all of this sort of uh, executives at a higher level uh, in the state etc that charge they were exonerated of or not exonerated they, the charges were dropped against them that case their case can come back up but you have these other workers who are seeing it happen. Mm -hmm. uh, They're professional health providers. Mm -hmm. They're doctors. We talk to doctors. uh, They're chemists. Mm -hmm. We talk to uh, chemists. They are seeing it happen. They know. They know there's Legionella. They know there's lead. They see the impact. They know people are dying, and no one listens to them. And what was interesting to me is that these people, as you suggested during our trip, were broken, mm-hmm. and broken in ways that the residents weren't. Mm-hmm. And because it's as if they are watching people be destroyed. And so uh, all of the instances, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but of all of the folks that we talked to, the residents never broke down crying to us. Mm-hmm. The only people that broke down in tears were the workers mm-hmm. on another level, and okay. and and I found that uh, really profound because mm-hmm. they felt just as the residents felt a sort of hopelessness. Well, they didn't. The residents were that we spoke to were like, nope, no, you know, this we aren't. We're gonna fight. No. But the other people were fighters, and the other people felt a hopelessness because these were the jobs they were called to do and i think that they felt they were being a part of a system that had really turned their back turned its back on the residents and they were trying to be if you will those whistleblowers right. uh and they weren't being heard and and in a couple of businesses you know one is i think this uh Person that we were speaking with that worked in public health, you know, was like, you know, well, you can leave. I mean, that mm-hmm. that they, they had they had to keep their jobs, uh, yet they're witnessing uh, a system that they're a part of allowing these people literally to be poisoned and killed. And 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 you know, when we first our first conversation was Bethany.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What was the word she used?
0: useless eaters.
1: That they had been, someone had said to her Mm -hmm. that you all are just useless eaters Mm -hmm. and in essence that you're expendable Mm -hmm. and that there's a plan. Basically, Bethany was saying to us, there's a plan Mm -hmm. to really get rid of us that the water crisis has been used as an excuse to gentrify this city and to get rid of us. And there's a plan to turn a lot of this city into green space. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The green space Mm -hmm. is where the people live. And Mm -hmm. so they need to get rid of the people. And so, you know, our thought initially was, Mm -hmm. you know, okay, a little exaggeration there. Uh, Well.
0: No, this was a reoccurring theme with every single person we spoke
1: with. From even the council people from the, uh public health workers all the chemists the engineer that we spoke to the last day they all said oh no they aren't wrong they're Mm -hmm. justified in thinking that they're expendable right
0: Yeah. so there was this there was this uh plan released years ago with the idea of shrinking it's called the shrinking the the shrinking shrinking cities plan (laughs) um, which they 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 looked at ways to you know Respond to the depopulation in Flint that was happening naturally with people leaving Flint, um, but they didn't ask for any community input or very little community input. People were shell shocked to learn that their communities—you know—there were these grand ideas of literally wiping out their communities, um, and people were people were—you know—shell
1: shocked by this. Yeah, and so it appears to the people and 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 everyone on every level. So, no one every time we raise. I raise. You know, Mm -hmm. well, the residents think that uh, they're expendable. The residents think that really this is a part of getting rid of them. Everyone said, well, yeah, Mm -hmm. right. No one was surprised. No one was surprised. I was looking for a little, oh, no, they're exaggerating. They said, Mm -hmm. well, yeah, so this whole notion, Right. right? of no response to the poisoned water, this whole notion of putting liens on people's houses and taking their children away, the fact that there's not a single elementary school that I saw uh, in these neighborhoods, and we learned that there aren't, that uh, that this is all a part, and they turned where these schools were and these blighted homes, they turned that into green space, so this is all a part of shrinking the city. And what they really need to talk about is shrinking the population. How do we get rid of these people? And one uh, woman activist that uh, born and raised in Flint uh, said, you know, I said, well, what would you tell the people? She said, I would tell them they have young children to get out of here. Well, and it's not worth the risk. It's not leave, worth the risk. Leave
0: this community. Right. To have small
1: children. And I think it was the councilwoman who said to us that, uh, we talked about the schools. I kept, so I kept asking the question, where are the schools? Mm-hmm. And so the councilwoman said to us, well, you know, when you take a school out of the neighborhood, that lets the people know that that neighborhood, you don't care. So it's time for them to go. So it's a way of moving the people out. And so it's as if they're trying to make this, you can't make this stuff up, mm-hmm. but it's as if they're trying to make the living conditions so horrid that people are forced to leave, mm-hmm. and everyone, from the professionals to the laypersons, said that exact same thing from beginning to end. Right. Bethany made the the, the comparison to, to uh,
0: Katrina and the right. Ninth Ward, and hey, this is a, a section of the city that will be uh, great, greatly impacted, and then once folks leave, we can we can redevelop. Uh, So gentrification was absolutely a theme throughout um, all of our conversations. The other one was trustfulness and and trustfulness with institutions, with their officials. Um, And one of the one of the other correlations or uh, one of the other connections was uh, Dr. Larry Reynolds Mm. brought up um, two kind of errors and moments in American history that he saw uh, kind of playing out in the Flint water crisis. One was post Reconstruction America and then the Tuskegee experiment. Mm-hmm. And the two of you, uh, you know, it was like a light went off in your mind thinking about those those moments uh, when he brought them up.
1: Yeah. I think it was uh, a wonderful connection with all the people. But uh, Dr. Reynolds and I, uh, same generation, mm-hmm. it was like we had the same parents right? who uh, <laughs> would, like yeah, right, yeah. we would tell <laughs> us the same stories. But a light bulb went off for me. Mm-hmm when he said, it's like the Tuskegee experiment. Mm -hmm. And right now, it almost makes me cry. Because one, of course, the scientific and medical community knew what they were doing to those poor black men. Mm -hmm. And they were experimenting on their bodies. This is a part of what it means to be black in America. That your bodies are not respected. And they often become experiments. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it happened with uh, Norplant. uh, When that came out, what now, 20 so years ago, uh, with young black girls in Tennessee, it happened when they told young black girls that they were going in for uh, one thing and they came out with hysterectomy. So they're always experimenting on black bodies. And that's what they did in the Tuskegee experiment. And so what that did was erode a level of trust. And so that there's this whole culture, right? These stories of non-trust, of distrust, I guess is the word, of distrust in the scientific and medical community, right? And that's why black churches have become so important and were so important because that's where you could go Mm -hmm. and sort of trust and get tested for something. And so that's why black churches have health fairs, right, where you can get your blood pressure tested, et cetera, uh, because of things like the Tuskegee experiment. And what almost brought tears to my eyes is that these people in Flint, it's as if they, again, are being experimented on, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of their water. I mean, water is something, one, you know, some of us think you ought not pay for, uh, it's. there's plenty of water, but what has happened, and Flint has been, the powers to be at Flint have been very clear about it, that you can make a profit from water, right? right. Because everyone needs it, mm-hmm. everyone needs water, so what if you say, oh, well, I'm going to create a monopoly on the water. I mean, which it sounds absurd uh, to, in that you know these are resource, God-given resources. But companies go in and they get rights to the water, and we we see this like rights to the land. We see this theme, right? And this is what was going on, you know, at uh, uh, with the First Nations people, and so. They get rights to this water, then they make people pay for this water, and then they poison the water. Uh, Again, they still make people pay for the water, and then you see, well, what a pact does this have on people's bodies? This, you know, Dr. Reynolds was talking about this. It was like the Tuskegee right. I- experiment. It's and it and it's these and the the funny thing is not the funny thing in haha funny, but the ironic thing is is the residents know they right. are. They don't need all of these degrees in science or sociology or whatever. Each resident mm-hmm. told us in their own way that they knew what was going on. Right. That they knew, in essence, that they are expendable people being experimented on. And each resident, particularly those who had children, they weren't concerned for themselves, but they were concerned for their children. And, 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 and one thing that Dr. Reynolds made clear is that this led uh poisoning as the children it's not that they were poisoned they are poisoned mm-hmm. that this lead poisoning it can, it will have a generational impact right. because the lead then becomes a part of their bones mm-hmm. and so that they don't yet know what impact that's going to have on the children who have been poisoned mm-hmm. on their children uh, in terms of uh, genetic impact, and that one generation was exposed, meat exposes the next generation, particularly when you're talking about uh, mothers and the children sure. that they will carry mm-hmm. in the, in their wombs right. and that thrive on uh, the mother's body, you right. uh, so to speak. So they don't the the impact of this we have yet to see. Right.
0: Yes, and parents
1: breastfeeding their children,
0: you know, that could be a huge you know opportunity for. Continued uh, exposure, um, you know, parents giving their children formula that is not completely boiled. Um, well, you know, the these first... are great, you know, awful opportunities for additional exposure for children um, as they as they, as they
1: grow. The first thing he said, remember, Ian, is that when he found out saw the reports about the lead, mm-hmm. that he called his next-door neighbor who had an infant right. and said, yeah. stop yeah. 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 <laughs> giving mm-hmm. them formula. Right. Uh, then he said, right. as a pediatrician, you tell people you mm-hmm. know, to give formula, da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. The best thing to do, he said, is to breastfeed. And mm-hmm. if you can't breastfeed, fine, give formulas. He said that the standard advice that you give to parents of newborns mm-hmm couldn't give that in Flint, because it was it meant poisoning yeah, your children, right? right. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he and I spoke about, uh, it's funny, I had mentioned it to you apart from this conversation, mm-hmm. and he almost said the exact same thing, and we hadn't even talked about it. I said, this is a poison to prison pipeline, mm-hmm. because these children you are setting up, because they will have behavioral issues uh, mm-hmm. if, for the most part. In, in their schools and then that behavior is criminalized uh, in the schools. The children are blamed for something that they are not responsible for that happened in the womb. You criminalize their behavior and before you know it, we're talking about the, uh, the landing them in prison. And he talked about how the rate sort of of uh, people who have had these high lead ex, uh, exposure, lead poisoning, how they will end up, and I, and I take back exposure because now people are trying to say, oh, they aren't poisoned, they were just, just exposed. exposed. Uh, the, so this lead poisoning and the rate uh, that the likelihood mm-hmm. that they will encounter uh, the criminal justice system uh, is high. And so, you know, so you have, whether or not you're simply talking about conditions of poverty, which I call a culture of death anyway, Mm -hmm. the conditions of poverty, the likelihood for people who live in such conditions, uh, who have no life options, you make life options hard for them, uh, that they might uh, end up engaged in the criminal justice system. And then you put, you add on to that Mm -hmm. uh, something like lead poisoning, where you increase That likelihood, and uh, unless there's caring, Mm inter-consistent intervention on many levels, Uh, and so he he said, un uh, sort of uh, without a catalyst, uh, unprompted, uh, unprompted, Mm -hmm. uninitiated, he said, oh, we're talking about a prison, a poison to prison pipeline.
0: Mm -hmm. So. The theme, one of the themes was absolutely gentrification. We're getting into the the trustworthiness and the, the distrust that is uh, that felt they permeated through every one of our conversations. The other the other piece that we discussed with the residents uh, and the and the people we spoke with was justice. Hmm. Um, and recent news uh, the attorney the brand new state attorney general has dismissed. Uh, many of the charges on the officials that they that the the former attorney general uh, was seeking out and indicting folks. Um, they're they're opening a new probe, and nobody kind of really knows what that means yet. Um, so we will see. Um, but we talked to folks about justice and what justice would look like for them. Um, and you you had some thoughts on that.
1: Now you're gonna have to spark my memory again mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what uh, they suggested uh, get justice would look like, uh, except I know that they said <laughs> fixing the problem.
0: Uh, um. Yeah, fixing the problem. Um, and then I think when when you talked about justice, it was, there's all these officials that are claiming the water's fixed. And when we right. spoke with the one journalist, um, he was saying like, all right, if the water's coming out at a certain level, like parts per billion of lead in a, in a certain place, that That tells you about the water in that space, but it doesn't tell you squat about what's happening in my home. Right, right, right. right? So these are these are going to be long term issues, um, and there's going to be you know there are just incredible financial implications for every every individual who now needs to purchase water, purchase filters. Um, Some of these filters can also become breeding grounds for the 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 the, uh, the, legionella and the the other toxins. Right, and this is really a this is really a crisis that is not over until the those most impacted kind of say it is.
1: Um, well, you know, they said that they're fixing pipes in the streets, mm-hmm. in some streets and in some neighborhoods, but that doesn't matter. Even the engineers and the chemists were saying that because until they fix the pipes in the homes and the water right. heaters. Uh, and because the bacteria is just sitting and I mean, even Bethany knew that, mm-hmm. right? And not even Bethany, Bethany the, the mm-hmm. residents knew that, mm-hmm. knew that they need to remove our water heaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the, the problem of just the water and the pipes to say we've replaced the pipes. Well, no, but you haven't fixed the problem right. uh, because these people's homes are con- uh, contaminated. Uh, with these corrosive pipes and water heaters in which Legionella is waiting there. And a lot of other, they were naming other toxins that are uh, in the water, in the bacteria. And so this is a long-term uh, problem. Again, you know, here's the interesting thing, that people are saying they're turning this town into a college and a research town, right? You can sort of see that downtown. Mm-hmm. and. You, and that, So they want these other people got to go. Uh, and so they'll create green space out of peopled space. You know, mm-hmm. remind you, remind you of what happened to First Nations people, right? They just ran them off their land one way or the other. And there was, you know, one, one uh, federal official long ago said, well, they will either assimilate or be exterminated. And this is what we see, as far as I'm concerned, going on. Uh, in Flint with uh, their residents. And so turning their land into green space. But the interesting thing is, which is sort of a metaphor for what's going on in terms of the gentrification, corporations, but particular company moving in and uh, having a research center and a college, uh, university moving in that you can best believe they have good water and good pipes. Right. And it the metaphor mm-hmm. for this is GM, mm-hmm. right? When the water crisis first emerged and people became aware that there was lead in the water, now mind you, they aren't believing the residents mm-hmm. that, you know, people who are actually hair falling out, skin rashes, children sick, they aren't believing the residents, <laughs> GM says, "Whoa." you know, our parts are being corroded. Mm-hmm. Uh, our engines are being corroded. Uh, must be the water. Mm-hmm. And GM stops using the water. And they, the GM, what, somehow connects to a different water line, stops using the water. The city and the state know it. And G- took GM off of whatever the, uh, the water line was because it was corroding their parts mm-hmm. and yet they allow the they don't believe the residents well uh, and they allow this to continue in the residence home so to me this is the metaphor for what's going on there now and so that the residents continue to uh, have poison water mm-hmm. and yet we can best believe that the research uh, facilities moving in and the university moving in downtown that they don't. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so this is this what began this is what's ending this uh, in a certain way. Yeah,
0: in the Anna Clark's book, her mentioning that the state offices in Flint getting water coolers early right. in the crisis, um, you know, as early as GM start changing their ward. Speaking of GM, on our last day, uh, one of our our last two stops were at the the picket line uh, for GM workers, which is kind of. Uh, emblematic of the, the shrinking mm-hmm. city and the the, the shrinking plants um, that used to be in the city. Um, and we also stopped at St. Andrew's Church uh, and met, um, uh, oh, yes. met Jay, uh, Reverend Jay Gantz. Gantz. Father, Father Gantz. Father yeah. um, is there anything we would say about both Reverend Dan and Reverend yeah. Gantz and their ministry and what we saw and what we witnessed um, as far as their impact and, and kind of? Uh, in the community,
1: um, yeah, exactly. And the challenge for us, mm-hmm. as as the seminary, as as we uh, train our students, uh, first, both of them were very actively engaged uh, in the community. Uh, Reverend Gant's church was right in the heart of uh, the neighborhoods of which are blighted and which people have turned their backs on, and. Uh, Dan Reverend Shide's uh, church is sort of as he describes it at an intersection. On mm-hmm. um, one side of the intersection, you're in the blighted area. The other side of the intersection, uh, you are not. Uh, his con- he has a larger congregation. Father Gantz has a very small congregation. He said oh, across three services or so, you might have twenty five uh, parishioners. But they somehow he's found the resources uh, creatively through grants, et cetera, through partnering uh, with uh, Father Scheid and others to have a very active, engaged ministry to the community. And so he feeds uh, mm-hmm. what? At, at, Gantz's, at Father
0: Gantz's church, I think it's every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they host right. lunches uh, at, at uh, St. Paul's. Um, it's every Tuesday. Right. Um, and there's kind of a patchwork of community churches uh, that are hosting things like you know soup kitchens and, and community meals uh, to kind of make sure that the community is taken care of, and those are some of their most uh, attended uh, events and and kind of activities on on, on, the, on their campuses.
1: And what 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 exactly? And what struck me most about both of uh, their ministries mm-hmm. uh, is that they take care of their congregations. They take care of that sort of core congregation, they do the pastoral ministry and all of that, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they do more. Mm -hmm. And to me, I said, uh, uh, Dan Scheid, I said, this is the Jesus movement, uh, because he moves outside of the walls of his parish. Mm -hmm. And everywhere we went, Mm -hmm. everywhere, from we first went to, from the airport to the diner, right? Mm -hmm.
0: People
1: knew him, and the only way he could have set up all of these interviews that we had, people didn't know us, they borrowed on, we were borrowing on the trust they had in him, right? And so it says something about ministry, Mm -hmm. and what ministry to a community looks like, and how you began to get your parish engaged in ministries that they uh, are likely, not instinctively, uh, would instinctively be involved in, and it says, you know, you do it, you mm-hmm. embody it, and they come, and and they and they did the. Uh, I think of Father Gantz, Oh my gosh, you know, this very he had barely he is he's saying mm-hmm. that every month he has to figure out how he's gonna sort keep of it going. keep it going and meet the bills, but no bitterness, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but he knew what was important for that community and uh, empowers his own church, uh, small as it was, Mm -hmm. uh, to serve. And so I just think that one, the message for our students is that these weren't Sikh parishes, uh, and that these are the parishes that they're going to have to minister in uh, and find a way to do that in these very communities. And they weren't concerned, everyone that we saw uh, we met very few actual parishioners, except mm-hmm. when we were in uh, Father Shide's church, of Father Scheid. yet they all were connected to that church, right? Yeah. They all said, oh, he makes us feel like we're his members, and they rely on him. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that those are the ministries, the kind of ministries that we don't hear enough about and that should be highlighted, and these are so these are the kind of experiences We want to make sure that our students have. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want to look for ways for for them to be in conversation Mm -hmm. with persons like uh, Father Scheid and Father Gantz Mm -hmm. uh, and some of their challenges in ministry, yet very lively, uh, active ministries. Uh, And then, you know, it's like leaving there and they we heard stories of celebrities coming in and mm-hmm. leaving, you know, they dropped off their water. Now that people aren't even getting free water right. anymore, no. but dropped off their water, et cetera, um, that it, I don't want us to be those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so of course we will continue to explore ways to partner, but most of them said, and and Father Shide reminded us of this, what we have is our voice. Right. And that uh, as faith community, we can't solve the problem, mm-hmm. uh, but we can use our voice. Mm-hmm. And it's a part of our responsibility right. uh, to use our voice mm-hmm. to raise the concerns of the people with whom Jesus was in solidarity, uh, the crucified classes of people. And these people that are experiencing the poisoning uh, of their communities in Flint, are, we're, that's where Jesus would be. And they're the crucified classes. And so hopefully we can use our voice mm-hmm. uh, to let people know that uh, struggle in Flint is far from over. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't believe what you would see in Flint is, is being a part of this country. And the people in Flint also said that it's not just us. Right. A number of them bought up New <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and other communities, they said it's not just us. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think they ask us to tell their story.
0: Yeah. No, this story uh, and this trip has had an impact on me, and I, an impact oh, on yeah. you. Um, and I think this is exactly the type of proximity that we think uh, our students need, and uh, what will impact a uh, strong ministry moving forward. So, thank you.